today's episode of the Ticket to the Palette podcast, I am joined by my good friend, Kelly Mitchell. Kelly spends her days as a sales rep for Skirtick Wines, supplying premium beverages to restaurant and retail accounts in northern New Jersey, as well as New York City. Prior to joining the team at Skirnick, she first made her mark in the wine industry with her independent consulting business, Kelly Mitchell Wine, utilizing her network to spread the gospel of beverage. We sat down today to discuss her path to the wine business, what it's like to need a side hustle in the time of COVID-19, and most importantly, how much work all of us in the world of wine have in front of us to adequately represent the diversity of our communities and our country. Before we jump in, I want to say something right off the bat and make no mistake about it. I stand with the protests around the country and organizations like Black Lives Matter in the fight for justice and against systematic, institutionalized racism and police brutality. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like a wine podcast or a wine salesman is going to cure the world of its societal ills. But what I do know is that conversations like Kelly and I have today that you will hear are small and hopefully progressive steps towards some amount of change, towards some amount of progress. And if you're listening to this and you are in the wine industry, I hope you are confronted by something today, as I know I was both before recording and during recording, but mostly after recording. The wine industry and gatekeepers like myself have to realize where we have fallen short. We can all do more, and we must do more. Enjoy the episode. And here I am with a close friend, with confidant, with mentor, uh, influencer, all around uh, wine badass, Kelly Mitchell. Kelly, what's happening? Hey, oh my gosh, that was so flattering. Thank you so much. Um, I'm good. Uh, All things considered, we're here. We're alive. We're thriving in unique times, and that's really a blessing. So, can't complain. How many... Have you been listening to more podcasts, less podcasts? Like, what's what's your podcast lineup look like these days with the fact that we're all just sitting around our houses and, like, trying to work out on our couch? Yeah. I think I've been my, – I think my attention span has actually become shorter, so I've been doing smaller things, like listening to, like, shorter clip videos. Um, also, because I'm, like, an information junkie, I love information, and with COVID – I've become really in deep with like just understanding COVID and reading tons of articles every day about COVID. So I think that's become more of my um, pastime at the moment than listening to podcasts. Although I'm sure there's a lot of great podcasts out there that are giving some, you know, content that's really meaningful right now. But to be honest, I've been just like obsessed with the current events and just focusing on news related to those. So with COVID, how did, like, are you, how far down the rabbit hole did you go? Like, are you now, like, are you an expert? Can you tell me everything about COVID? Like, is that what this is about? I'm a huge fan of Dr. Fauci. Okay. (laughs) And I think I I have a pretty solid understanding of of how we got to this point related to COVID um, outside of the true scientific aspects, but just more of how it really evolved in our society and it's just become you know and then also of course i've been really 
interested in the impact kind of related um, pieces of it. So just the economic impact, um, you know, the joblessness, the, um, the, the disparity and how it affects people of color more. So just those kinds of tangential pieces of information and topics. I think I'm more, you know, tuned into like the, uh, you know, white flight, they call, you know, the white people leaving, wealthy white people leaving the city to go to their summer homes, um, you know, leaving all the COVID here in New York or maybe bringing it with them, who knows? So just all of those kinds of <laughs> cultural topics. <laughs> I've been like really into I, mean, I was going to say like, how do we feel about people who peaced out and are going to come back? You know, they've all been hanging out in Vermont for the past three months, right? <laughs> or like Livingston Manor. And now they're going to come back down South to New York and Although a lot of people are talking about not coming back to the cities, which is also going to be kind of interesting to see the long-term impact and, um, you know, how, like if, all right, if a small town, you know, I didn't say like 25,000, like a really good sized small town had a bunch of people from cities moving out to it that brought art, music, food, like I could probably handle living somewhere smaller. Yeah. But like without, without that, I feel like it would be kind of tough. Like the shit that we like to do, right? Go out, wine, dine, drink, et cetera. That's harder to do in a small town. So I'll, I'll be interested to see the long-term effect in that regard. Yeah, I think it takes time. That's like building a society and it takes time to really do that. I mean, Hudson Valley kind of has that vibe in the at least definitely in the summer months, but like some of the offshoot towns, they certainly don't. And it, just, it just can't be built overnight. So it'll be interesting. And I think we won't really see how many people leave New York fully until the fall because now we're in summer vacation. So it's like, it's not a real sense of what's going on. I think come like October and holiday season, we'll, and we'll see who's actually here. I think that will be a better sense of like, okay, this is the new like set of people who are going to be in New York. So it's just- and If people aren't coming back for fall in New York, then they're just not going to come back. Exactly. Like, fall in New York is the best. It's, so <laughs> it's the best. It absolutely is. Well, all right, so people just heard a little bit about uh, what it is you do now uh, and kind of your career in wine is something that I actually have never had the full picture of, but I've always been kind of fascinated by because you've got these like super beautiful, well put together headshots. Like you were like that motherfucker for so long, right? Like you were you were the person. Like you, you, you had this aura about you that uh, you, that says like, I, when I talk about wine, I mean business and, you know, I'm not here to waste anybody's time, most of all my own. And I've always really respected that. How did you, first of all, how did that develop, right? Like, where did you develop the kind of confidence that you have with wine, with selling wine? And if you can give people a little bit more introspection into your career and kind of how you've progressed to this point. Yeah, well, um, so it really all started from just like most people uh, being an enthusiast and being interested in wine. So I was in another career, which is another, unless you really come from like restaurants, I feel like most people who end up in our in sales roles or things like that are just career career switchers who wanted to work in wine because they're passionate about it. So that, that's more my, my lane. I was in finance and marketing, um, started taking some courses at the International Wine Center and that kind of, which is the place in New York for the WSCT. And that kind of gave me the confidence to like, okay, now I know a little bit about wine. 
And I got uh, a lot of great feedback while I was in class from my instructors. They were like, listen, you've got a great palette. You should really consider a career in this business. And I had no idea what a career in this business looked like. And actually someone invited me to a trade tasting. That was my first kind of like glimpse into the life. I, I like, you know, left my job early, went at like two o'clock to Tribeca, uh, to Tribeca to a tasting. And I was like, as soon as I walked in the room, I knew no one there, but I was just like, this is it. Like I'm, this is where I'm supposed to be in my, in, in my career. Um, so I just became super focused on trying to get into the industry. It took a while to find out what the right path would be. It's, there's a lot of high barriers to entry. Obviously, you know, especially at the lower levels, it's not a lucrative industry at all. So there's a lot of challenges kind of switching off from like more, more traditional um, corporate fields to just making it makes work for your life and your lifestyle. So there was definitely a lot of hurdles, but I got my first sales job at VOS Selection. So it's a small boutique um, importer and distributor. So I started selling wine for them. And then that is how, and then eventually I moved to Skernik. Um, but as far as like my headshot and kind of the, like the uh, personality, I guess you could say around it, that really was um, built out of um, an immediate and intense interest from consumers about what I was doing in the wine business, mostly from people that were in my network. So they, you know, a lot of people, I come from a pretty traditional academic background where people become like lawyers, doctors, Wall Street's like pretty and marketing, you know, marketing pr professionals, nothing people don't really venture out of the core paths too much. And so as soon as I made the switch, people became super interested in what I was doing and they were immediately trying to hire me for events and wanted me to speak and wanted to see what I could do. So I was like, well, I need to create a website and I need to get a headshot. So I, those are not even professional headshots that I've been using. They're like still, they were taken on, they were taken with a, a real camera, but not by like a professional photographer. And it just grew from there. And so I just had to create um, like a personal, a personal brand around my wine expertise, really in response to a lot of the like inquiries I was getting from consumers um, and businesses alike, like um, non-licensed businesses, you know, just corporate businesses, law firms, things like that. So that's kind of how it's, it all That's <laughs> awesome. I mean, cause that's, that's really laying the foundation for no matter who you're working for, no matter kind of what your quote unquote day job is, building your brand has always been that important, but also kind of lays the foundation for the fact that now more than ever, everybody in our business has to have some sort of side hustle, right? They, they have to have something that is, their own because, and you know, this is no offense to all the people that we work for who have given us opportunities, but like at the end of the day, we are labor and they are management. And there's a very clear dividing line of who gets the ultimate prize and who ultimately benefits the most from our work. And, and we can respect them and we can be thankful to them and, and enjoy working with them or for them, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, if you can have something on the side, like you said, that is you, that is you, that yeah. is not marketing something necessarily that you're like, you don't have a wine to market, but you have you to market. Yeah. That's so important. Thank you so much. It's really felt so important, especially because, you know, our jobs overall in the industry are so entrepreneurial. So it just kind of like you have that spirit and you take it with through all parts of what you're doing. And um, you know, Kelly Mitchell Wine, which is the name of my like wine consulting education arm, was always operational. 
um, on the side, just kind of doing tastings and events and more and teaching people about wine, but there was never really like a component to actually sell anything, a product. There was just, it was just a service. It was just education, training, things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it all evolved out of just, and it gives me a lot of satisfaction kind of having that in addition to, um, you know, having a sales job. So I, I currently work for Skernick Wines and Spirits. It's a mid-sized um, elite uh, dish, importer and distributor based in the New York, mainly based in the New York area. So I sell wine to restaurants. Well, I used to when they were open. Um, and <laughs> in uh, the, mostly New Jersey, but a little bit in New York as well. And um, I don't know, I think it just, having that consumer um, connection gives me a lot of insight that I can share with some of my accounts if they're open to receiving that feedback. But yes, it gives me a full wine life that can't be taken away from me, you know? And I think that's really um, been nice to have all of those different pieces um, and have them really all thriving. And they, they also do work really well together, you know, having access to such a phenomenal portfolio of wines that I know intimately and like um, makes it a lot easier to kind of, you know, pick wines for an event or talk about specific regions. So it's just, it all kind of flows naturally together, but it's for sure is much more of a secure feeling to know that on my own, my expertise is valued um, and my knowledge is value, valued and it's marketable and sellable. And so that is, yeah, that's been pretty, pretty great. But I, ha I didn't really set out to be, to have all of these arms and to become this kind of like person who does multiple things and it's kind of becoming like a whatever. I really just wanted to sell, just sell wine. But, you know, I think the times that we are in, um, it just calls for you. If you, if you have it in you, you have to do more. It's basically, it's not enough basically just to just put it out there. You have to, not just from like how much money you can earn or anything like that. It's just like, to me, it's just not as, it's not fully fulfilling and everything that I know that I'm capable of doing in the space and what I want my impact and legacy to be. So that's why I have all these other touch points that allow me to kind of have a full, more full experience and sharing all I have to offer um, with others. Being the information that you are, at what point did you start to freak out a little bit about COVID with regards to work? Because as you said, restaurants, like most of them aren't buying wine right now because, you know, even the ones that are uh, kind of liquidating their wine lists uh, are not in a position to replenish that stock. Uh, yeah. And retail accounts, if they do a lot of online business, I'm sure they're busy, but like given what we know now, did you freak out soon enough uh, in terms of like the apocalypse of, of wine distribution? Uh, or when did you start to get kind of concerned? I was on it pretty early. So I think we were officially called off the street, like to come to not be visiting accounts and just everything kind of shut down on a little, a Wednesday. I was already locked in on Monday, prepping for everything. I had immediately shifted my focus to my reach, my on my off prem accounts, which are retailers and, um, not to just turn my back on restaurants, but I just knew that that was going to be gone for a while and would not be turning to normalcy. And I knew that the strength and survival would really come from the strength of these relationships and how well I was able to adapt to um, selling more specifically to my retailers while also not going into their stores, which is, you know, it's like an old school um, expectation of our job that, you know, 
those people who were there more often or around and in the store, in the buyer's face, get, you know, bigger, more business. And maybe it helps to develop strength in the relationship and you can grow that way. But it's proven to be that that's truly not necessary um, to do business. Retailers were completely swamped and unprepared. Many of them were unprepared for the influx of um, of spending that was happening in their locations. It started to wind down, I think, as the economic impact settled in. And now you're hearing more people just saying, I've been drinking too much during COVID. I'm actually going to take a like. I think the novelty of like basically like drowning our stresses in in wine and spirits is starting to wear off and people are getting more concerned back with their health and they want to pull it back a little bit. And it's also summertime when people start drinking beer and just like cheaper, lighter things anyway. So it is starting to slow down, but I feel like I, I quickly um, adapted. And it was also interesting to see, and you kind of touched on this, just like online retailers are people who had strong connections to their, um, people who had strong connections to their, their networks there, whether it be, they be a neighborhood store, they have to have a really on point email list and people that are used to engaging in a very intimate way with their customers transitioned really seamlessly. People who didn't have those relationships with their customers or weren't set up for the remote um, sell, like the remote uh, business model, definitely struggled with adjusting to that. So it was just, it was a, it was a roller coaster ride and it, it impacted every single account differently but um but yeah it's it's it was a uh, pretty interesting to see and then just to see the shift in how much people were buying from retail stores it was they, some you know many cases some of the stores were having holiday like december like numbers and it's just out of the blue so yeah it's still kind of hard to believe and you got involved and kind of uh, entrepreneurial with the digital online sales with Kelly Selects, which is what, like a rotating six pack of wines that you're selling through the uh, website Wired for Wine? Yes. So Kelly Selects was kind of born. So Kelly Selects is, um, I've only watched one set so far, but there will be another set coming out. So yes, it will be a rotating set of six wines. The first set was just to introduce people to my wine style and preferences. I provided literally no information as to what the, what it was included in the, the set of wines. It was just all sold on my reputation and my enthusiasm and, and just through social media. And it was hugely successful. After the, a couple of weeks of launching it, I ended up listing the individual wines on the site so that people can go back and re-up re on their favorites. Um, but it, it went over supremely well. And it was really just taking advantage of, or not really taking advantage of, providing something that people were in need of. I mean, my phone was ringing off the hook about people wanting wine, where to get wine. And I was lucky to be in the position. It was one of those things that it only happens with all those pieces working together, right? Me being at Sternick, knowing those wines well, me having a great relationship with Wire for Wine, who's an expert online retailer that happens to be an account that I work with, and then being open to this partnership. And um, we also, of course, included a, a give back component. So we we wanted to support restaurant out of work sommeliers, especially specifically Psalms, because a lot of them get kind of pushed to the side for other restaurant workers. And so we're donating a small portion of the proceeds to that. And yeah, it just went over really great. It, it was really well received and it gave me a chance to kind of strengthen my relationship and my dialogue with the consumer audience because 
I almost felt sometimes that even though I was doing my like Kelly Mitchell wine consulting events, I knew people wanted more consumers wanted more from me. I'm not a blogger. I don't have a YouTube channel. I wasn't, I don't have a podcast yet. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I was going to say it. Like, yeah, on. that might be coming soon. So I just felt like I was still leaving um, a piece of connect, a point of connectivity on the table by not having anything like this. And Kelly Selects just really, truly filled that void because it allowed us to have conversations around the wine. So I did a couple of online chats in different formats. Um, I was, you know, constantly in communication with people who purchased the set with answering their questions and being excited when they share posts and all that. So, so yeah, it was a, it was a perfect um, opportunity and I'm glad that I was able to make it happen. And I think it was the right timing for it. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a real thing. I think it's like, you know, here to stay. And I have to, I, I, my plan is to release one more set in the very near future, like kind of like a pre-summer easy breeze set and then take a little bit of a, a summer break and reset reconfigure for the fall and holiday and get like a real serious plan together because that's like our you know our major time and we, i want to make sure it's like so great whatever i do so so kelly yeah. selects will be continuing post covid yes so, because the other thing that it really allowed me to do um because you know our, our jobs have are primarily pretty localized when we work for distribution companies we're we're literally field salespeople working in a small territory so this also allowed me to connect with my broader audience which i've had from just different walks of life i think going to school at spelman um which is in the south but it's like a very amazing college that produces leaders across the country and people kind of come from all over to go there so I have a national network and I really wasn't able to previously connect with them online that much because I really, they weren't here to do local events with me or, or to book me for local parties and things like that. So this has also been, it worked really well because it allowed me to kind of reach out to my national network. And I think that there's a thirst for more. So yes, I will, I do plan on continuing it. Um, and just, you know, just also not trying to overwhelm myself, but just, you know, letting it evolve and grow at its natural pace. But it's for sure been a highlight of the year for me, a, a huge um, accomplishment that I'm proud of. And just something that I think really strengthened my overall brand and connection to my, to my consumer audiences and followers. So that's been really cool. Well, if anybody wants to check out these wines and purchase a set for yourself, all you need to do is a, a quick way is to just Google Kelly selects wine, but also uh, wiredforwine.com slash product slash Kelly selects. Uh, and there's a, a, a six pack on there right now with an incredible sparkling wine from Jackie blow uh, the triple zero, some white burgundy from Franz Chagnolou, uh, one of the great intro level dry Rieslings in the world from Von Vinning, uh, Cavalotto, which is just about, my favorite producer in Piemonte, uh, some Barbera, and then finishing up with the Ultrea Saint Jacques from Bierzo and Raul Perez, who has no time for anybody's bullshit. Uh, this is a incredible selection of six wines. I've been saying that Raul Perez has no time for your bullshit for like six years now. Why, uh, why do you say that? That's so funny. I don't, I don't really know. He just strikes me as somebody, for those who don't know, Raul Perez is a winemaker in uh, Northwestern Spain who's about five foot, oh, I don't know, six, uh, who has a beard that's approximately four foot five. And he just strikes me as someone who, when it, does, when it comes to doing something other than eating large cuts of beef or drinking wine, has no time for anybody's shit and, and really is not one to just play around and waste time. So 
he's one of the few very, very short people that I really respect. <laughs> that is so mean, Will. I'm just, you know, we're here to be honest. It's, it's, it's the time of coronavirus. Uh, if we can't be honest now, when can we? Um, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you've spent a lot of time recently uh, paying attention to current events. And we would be tone deaf, we would be irresponsible, and we would be ultimately just flat out dumb not to talk about everything going around right now. And look, I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, the conversation of police brutality, of the systematic prejudice and racism that is inflicted really among all people who are not white in this country, but historically, and I think acutely focused on the black community, these are all topics that I think everybody has an opportunity to find a resource to, to read about, to learn about, to discuss right now. Uh, and given our situation in the wine industry, I wanted to, to kind of pivot this discussion towards that to, towards us really because the wine industry does not reflect our communities in terms of who works in it um we have made a lot of headway in certain ways uh in certain in, in certain directions like uh more and more women are making wine are owning wineries are becoming managers at sales companies uh etc there has been slow but steady progress towards more Mexican-American owned wineries and winemakers and decision makers, given the fact that the overwhelming majority of laborers in wine country that are picking the grapes, that are tending the vines, uh, that are helping out in the cellar are immigrants from Central America. We, we have made progress in those regards. We have more openly LGBTQ uh, et cetera, winemakers and sales reps and, and company owners and, and sommeliers. And yet, <laughs> the amount of progress that we have made with celebrating, with championing, with hiring, with marketing wine in the Black community is nada. It essentially doesn't exist. And I bring... I bring this up with, to say that, and I, and I posted on Twitter this yesterday, a whole thread that I think one of the reasons why a lot of people aren't talking about that right now in the wine industry, everybody's saying, oh, well, go buy wine from these seven to 25 black-owned wineries. Great. Pat yourself on the back, you know, and then we, and then we can move on or, or order dinner from a black-owned restaurant. Mm -hmm. But a conversation that we have seemed to be less willing to have is why the people making the wine, owning the wineries, selling the wine, and being marketed to are overwhelmingly white. Yeah. And the involvement in the black community is so little. And I think one of the reasons why we've been so hesitant to bring it up is because I look at myself and the fact that I am a gatekeeper. I run a portfolio of wineries. And Yesterday, I was sitting there, or maybe two days ago, I was sitting there asking myself, I was like, have I even received samples from a Black-owned winery? Have I sent out a recruitment letter to a Black-owned winery? And the answer was no. And that was a 
difficult reality to just kind of like smack yourself across the face with. Uh, it was a necessary one. And so I think that this conversation, uh, we would be remiss. And given how informed you are, given your own personal experience, and given the fact that, uh, you know, there are, there are a few people in this industry that I would rather talk to about this than you. Uh, I'm, I'm curious of your perspective in a lot of ways. And I want to start with this one. We worked at Skarnak Wines together. Yeah. Uh, in the New York office, right? Because there is the, uh, there's the Long Island customer service and billing department office. Uh, but in the, in the sales apparatus, not the most diverse team that I've ever come across. <laughs> no. Right? no, I don't mean to laugh. It's just like laughing to keep from like crying. Yeah, no, there's that. There's a pretty much a lack of diversity. And it's funny that you mentioned that piece because I almost, there's a, a fact about me and my existence at Skernick that I tend to try to brush under the rug because it's almost embarrassing. I think it's embarrassing to even say, and it's not what I really wanted to be, but essentially I am the first black woman that has ever sold wine for Skernick Wines and the company has been around for 32 years. I don't know of another industry where I could be the first to do it. Many things. I mean, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of progress needs to be made in many other industries, but You'd be like when I was in finance, there was, of course, some powerhouse black women ahead of me and that had done amazing things. And 2020, you know, I started there in 2017. You don't expect at 2017, when I was um, 34 years old, I did not expect to be the first black woman doing anything. So that was a kind of a harsh reality mm. to accept. Um, and I, it was, I confirmed it with people who had been at the company longer than me and forever. And it's, it's the truth. Um, but at the same, on the other side of uh, the other side of it is that there are many companies who have still yet to have a black woman selling wine for them. Almost I mean, in a ton. There's so many. Right. This is not limited to Skernick. No, right? no, we don't, yeah. I don't mean to point out Skernick. I just right. meant to bring it up with regards to our shared experience. Our industry, exactly. And so, I actually started compiling a list. I think there's something like four um, black women selling wine in the United States. I, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I'm pretty much the most notable of all of them. Um, there isn't anybody that is selling wine at the level, you know, as far as the por portfolio level um, that I am. I don't know people's sales numbers. They might be selling more wine than me, but when it comes <laughs> to like prestige and just, working with elite product producers, real, you know, estates that are really, you know, um, high profile, there's nobody at doing it. So that was kind of a hard pill to swallow. Like, wow, I'm really kind of like a trailblazer in that regard. So what does that mean to me? So one thing I have personally, you know, and I think it's great what you said about what you did about being reflective about like the seat that you sit in and, and the way in which you're a gatekeeper to certain things. And I'm glad you had that realization that you need to reach out to those some of those black wineries and get some samples and you know at least start to think about ways in which some of them may maybe a fit for your for your portfolio so for me i've been working kind of twofold one thing this is kind of been behind the scenes but I'm, I'm happy to share it is that we don't also we also don't have any diversity on that regard when it comes to our suppliers which you kind of talked about so one thing i have been doing is suggesting to distribution companies potential, you know, black owned wineries that don't have distribution or most of them just don't have the distribution in our area, recommending them to be 
reviews. So some, some like basically someone like me coming to someone like you saying, hey, you should look at this, you should look at this winery. So I've been working in that regard um, behind the scenes and I haven't had a win yet, but, but we'll see if that ends up happening, um, which would be a huge win to add, you know, an amazing producer to like a Skernick, for example, or to another portfolio that may be a better, a better fit for them in the New York area. That would check, you know, we know what distribution does for the bottom lines of wineries. That would be a, a huge win. And then the other thing I've been trying to do is really thinking about my career. Do I recommend this as a career path? Do I want to mentor other women to come into this line of work? At this point, I, that's not where I'm directing my energy. I'm still uncertain if this is a really great career path, to be honest with you, for women of color. And I am hesitant to go out and be like, everyone should be wanting to be sales reps like me because I don't know if I completely agree with that. And um, I've well, decided- that? Well, I'm still learning. I mean, I definitely, it's a second career for me. So I'm behind, I guess you can say, if, if, if I, and then there's no real, it's not the same as like people who come from something that's traditional and go right from college to like an analyst program or it's not that, you're not behind in that way. People have various pre-professional backgrounds, but I still feel like I'm, I mean, I've been doing this six or seven years, um, but, I think I'm just still waiting to see how it truly progresses and how it over the time. And I think once I maybe hit 10 years, I think I'll be able to say, okay, this is a, you know, great place, a good career path. I recommend it. I feel engaged in these ways. I just, at the, at the moment, um, and I'm getting, my, my experience is limited to two companies. Um, I have, I feel like I have had a good setup and a good situation. I just am not confident that others would have, a similar experience as I have. And that scares me in making a recommendation. Plus, I just honestly know like badass women who are super, super smart, highly educated, kind of like your wife. <laughs> and um, and like, they're not, you know, they're, they, they perform at a high level and they work at a high level and they're used to high level things. And so I'm not trying to belittle this career as it be, not being high level, but it has, I think there are, it can be, and there are certain, components that have to come together, portfolio quality, management quality, other things that can make it a really serious operation. But if some of those pieces are not in place, you can be like, this is, why am I doing this? This is not, you know, coming together, right? I still think there's just a little bit of a lack of structure that, um, and I think it's just so specific to company to company. So Yes, that's my view on that. So I've been focusing on trying to look at supplier diversity and then also um, asking, I mean, the next step for me, and this is kind of leading into like what we're talking about with the current climate is like now that we are being more open about race, conversations about race, I am curious, like, are these wineries anti-racist? Would they identify as anti-racist? Um, you know, would they... Um, consider themselves supporters of Black Lives Matter? And now those are difficult questions that, you know, wineries have never been asked before of anything related to that. But I think that's where we're headed. And I think you're going to have to be able to say and identify. And I know, for example, with Kelly Silix, the next version, that is going to be a requirement for me. So if a winery cannot tell me that they identify as anti-racist, and it will be asked, you know, respectfully and with no pre preconceived notions, I just want to make sure we're on the same page with this. And if we're not, then I'm not selling your wine to my, you know, 500 plus people that I want to, that bought my wine last time. So 
Um, that's kind of where I think, and I think that is, I wouldn't, I don't think even a month or two before this, I would have been thinking along those lines. I wouldn't have felt that that was appropriate necessarily to ask. So I think we are making progress just by what we are more comfortable saying and discussing and mentioning. Doesn't make it any less difficult, but at least we're not, it's totally not out completely out of left field. So it's like now that the, the spotlight is on the topic, let's have some real conversations about it. That's actually, there's two things I want to touch on with that you just mentioned. One is a little, you know, you get those like lightning bolts in your head of like, oh, that's a moment of privilege for myself. I have never once considered second guessed a question that I would ask a winery or like how I would phrase a question to a winery. Uh, so, I mean, thank you for sharing that because I think that's a lesson that I just learned that I have never thought about until now. Uh, and this is good. This is good. Let's, let's beat Will over the head and make sure that I learn. Um, but also, I think it was uh, John Bonet at Punch Drinks a couple of years ago wrote a really fascinating article with regards to um, like how I think it was framed in the such of like how woke does a winery need to be for us to support their wines. And there was a lot of backlash um, and the backlash was really about like, well, if I enjoy somebody's wine, why do I need to like them as a person, right, to drink their wine? And I, you know, if somebody black, white, Latino, Asian, uh, Middle Eastern, what, if you, if you think like that, fair enough. Like I, I, I don't know what to respond to that with, but like, I guess you're entitled to that. But it was more so about like, how do we evaluate where we spend our dollars, right? How do we evaluate who we financially prop up? And it's something that I think we're all slowly and slowly becoming more cognizant of. Like Nina and I at home, we have decided that like as convenient as Amazon Prime is, and my God, it is, but like how much more money can we contribute to Jeff Bezos? And the thing and the constant stories you hear about the workplace conditions for the drivers and in the warehouses, like how long can you be complicit in that with spending your money? And even as something as ultimately trivial as a bottle of wine, like this is not a necessary purchase for your life. Um, but I think especially for something like that's like that, isn't it? just as important to take that moment to consider like you know there are a lot of wineries mm -hmm. that are that will will probably not give you an answer that you like because there's a lot of money and you know napa was like the only you know napa i think in particular uh during the california primary went for michael bloomberg and it was like one of the few counties in california the one from, from Michael Bloomberg. And I remember, quote unquote, like natural wine Twitter and natural wine Instagram people were all like, oh, like, fuck Napa. Like, of course, they're all rich. They're all assholes. They're going to vote for Trump anyways. And it was kind of fascinating because I didn't really think about it before then that in these big money places, there are probably going to be some people that that question will you know, kind of give them some pause and they won't want to take a stand because a lot of their clients are probably, you know, huge collectors. And not to say that if you are a huge collector, you are racist. I'm just saying like, 
we're just working on percentages here, okay? We're just playing the odds of like, you know, so I don't know. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. And I hope that you get an incredible response. I hope that the wineries you want to feature are like, hell yeah. Uh, we're on board and we're not just, we're not just uh, passive about it, but what, what do we need to do to take things up a level? And um, that would be really cool. I, I, yeah, it remains to be seen. I haven't had these conversations yet. This is just an idea at this point. And, you know, there's definitely a way in which it has to be handled. We have, you know, our portfolio management layer. So it would definitely be something that it would include hopefully their, their, um, guidance but i is for for me in this moment i am taking charge of my economic and the economic power mm -hmm. of the people who support kelly selects and i am not going to put a winery in my set that doesn't that says that they're not that can't confirm to me that they are anti-racist and again I'm that not, was so dope the way you just said that economic yeah. power yeah it is let's fucking go <laughs> It's economic, and if that's not enough money for you to say that, then fine. I'll, there's so much wine out there, so much great wine out there. I'll move on. We'll never speak about it again, and that's that. You know, there's so many choices that we all have to make about how we spend our dollar, how we spend our time, and I think you know, on a cap in a capitalist society which we live in, I do think the play economics are a huge part, and how you spend economic power and how you direct that is a huge part of really thriving. In a, cap, in a capitalist society and also to, or to just not thriving in a capitalist society as a capitalist, but just to be, to play, you're, let's, let's, play the, let's play the game then. Okay, this is what we're doing. Um, and also to get your message across. Um, and I think people will realize that they're, that can't confirm it, that they're on the wrong side of history. I mean, I even opened, even outside of just Kelly Selects, last summer I opened a pretty high profile rooftop account in the city and they only wanted a wine list that had was made was women winemakers or minority winemakers or or LGBTQ winemakers. Literally, we had to go digging and scrambling to figure out. Well, we, the women one we had that list kind of together, but figuring out who who qualified. And they literally were like, "We don't want to see any other products." So that was kind of a little bit of a um, hint at what was maybe to come. And I think there's no reason that. And I think they also asked for black you know, winemakers, which we didn't have, we don't have, but I think that that is, you know, where people are going with things. It's like, I'm in charge of this wine program. This is the, these are the kinds of families I want to support and people I want to support in the business. And therefore I'm going to be making my selections through this lens. And I think it's fine. It's a prerogative that everyone has. And it's not to say that I mean, we, there's lots of great wine made by white men, but that doesn't mean that they can't be anti-racist white men. Um, so it, we'll see how that goes, but that's, those are the kind of areas, the ways in which I am trying to make sure that I'm doing my part. So yeah, just like mainly the supplier diversity also being, I'm also do, do a lot of mentorship. Um, and I'm very accessible to, um, uh, up and coming wine professionals. I told you my struggle about recommending wine sales as a career path. I'm still not sure if that's what I would say, but I definitely guide people and, provide a lot of um, free career advice and feedback about the industry because I have an insider perspective that most people don't have access to. And then I also want to make sure anything I put my name on, you know, from Kelly Selects to anything going forward that I'm checking in with my all the partners involved um, 
and making sure that they are anti-racist. That's it. I mean, that seems like a fairly, you would hope a low bar to clear, but unfortunately, you we'll know. We'll see. We will see. <laughs> I hope it is a low bar to clear. But yes, that's where, that's where I am. But it's exciting. I mean, at the same time, it's just being, and then until we get more black winemakers in the mix, and there's, you know, there's still just a lot to be done. Um, but you have to, it's like, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. I love that quote. And that's kind of what you said, what you were kind of indicating with like looking at the position you sit in and where, what you can be doing differently just from that seat. You don't have to move one, one way left or one way right. I can sit on my ass and do all, you, know. you, you mentioned economic power. And I think it was a year or two ago, there were a couple really incredible articles published about the general, like beverage buying, maybe it was beverage buying power because uh, the number would feel low if it was overall buying power, but like estimating that black Americans buying power for beverage is $1.2 billion. Yep. And that the wine industry has largely left that on the table. Whereas the spirits industry in particular has really uh, capitalized on that. And it, and it mentioned cognac brands. Um, it mentioned uh, the, the sponsorships through certain vodka brands in particular, uh, that have kind of tied themselves to prominent, uh, cel- you know, b- black celebrities or what have you. Um, and the wine industry, again, while has, it has largely missed the boat on that, when you do see these partnerships, they're so, or marketing, I guess, they're so celebrity focused, right? Like it's, it's champagne brands that are hundreds and hundreds of dollars a bottle. Um, and, or the Snoop Dogg, or the opposite end, Snoop Dogg with, I think it's the, what's the um, wine from Australia? Um, is it Prisoner? No, there, I can't remember the brand, but Snoop Dogg has, has a, a recent partnership too, with like a entry level. Great. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it, Prisoner. With, also just not a great <laughs> yeah. oh, partnership. Wow. Well, what? It's like high or low, right? Like what? what what do you see, I guess, before you came into the industry, did you feel like wine was being marketed to you? Not at all. And I also think it doesn't have to be marketed in the way that we're thinking about. So I think the one big difference between, well, the couple of big differences between spirits and wine is spirits is very brand driven and it's also very sponsorship driven. Two big, big pieces that are primarily not really part of our overall industry. We, there are some, like you'll see, you know, the... Uh, Jackson Family Wines is the national sponsor for the PGA Tour. And you may see, you know, the U.S. Open has a wine, you know, wine sponsor of like a big family of brands. But when it comes to like real wine that we like to drink from the small estates and family-owned vineyards, you don't see that much. So those two pieces are missing. So what I think authentic wine marketing looks like is truly just inclusive um, inclusive uh, branding and marketing at the winery level on their websites and things like that. So ads, targeted ads, um, and Julia Coney, who is an amazing wine writer, you guys should all look her up. She also has done, has a kind of leads the charge in a lot of conversations related to race and wine. She um, was behind a lot of uh, positive change when it came to wineries from a specific region. She essentially tended their one of their gatherings and, you know, they asked her like different questions about diversity. And she said, I went to all of, you know, these four wine winery pages and there's not one black person in any of these 
um, you know, scanned ads. And these are all just like, you know, I forgot what it's called when you just buy an ad picture. These aren't even their their own proprietary shoots. They're picking these random wine pictures from a, bo a book of wine pictures and, you know, buying the rights to them and publishing them. Why can't you show a black person? I was super impressed with um, Napa Valley Wine Academy, which is the premier wine school on the West Coast. For I, I, a WSCT2 ad ran across my um, my Instagram and a couple other places, and it featured a black man. I was like, this is amazing. It was just him studying, you know. Again, they get ordered that same picture. They order the white girl or the white blonde lady. Why not pick a black guy studying for WSCT2? I think it's just that kind of imaging. So I think winery level. Imaging, um, on the social media. And I also think when it comes to the brands and I'm not really in this space and I kind of stay away from like the influencer space and I don't get paid to talk about anybody specific. That's just not the lane that I'm in. But apparently a lot of all those, many of those dollars are also going to very white, plain, you know, um, certain- If you want me to talk about influencers, we might need another hour. I know, it's a mess. So just there's none of that either. So that you, you there's no diversity when it comes to the influencers. Yeah. So they're all one looking kind of way and one lifestyle way. So I think it's really just about to me. I think authentically seeing more, simply seeing more black faces in winery, in the winery specific pages would be phenom a phenomenal start. Um, and you know, again, we're not really a advertising industry that has like we don't right. put a lot of ad dollars into our in marketing our brands. I think it still has to be more authentic and more on the individual level. But I think that that can be truly transformative. If you went to a wineries page, thinking about going to visit there, you're flying out the West Coast and you just you see one out of every six pictures has the person of color and it has a black person. That just it just automatically you may not even speak on it, but it's just it stays in your subconscious and you already feel like okay, this is a place that I can go. It's it's not you know, one way or the other. So I think that's certainly, um, and, you know, a good place to start from like a digital standpoint. And then like the access to specific rooms in, in the city and all the, that's a whole other topic about like who's invited where, and who can be going where, and who gets to be on the SOM team at this place or for that conference or for that industry event. That's a whole other conversation. And honestly, I think all of that is, has to start from scratch now from coronavirus like everyone's about to rebuild their social currency their social lives the rooms that they had access to do you still have access to that room and then who are you bringing with you this time if you do so there's just going to be a whole rebuild i think of our let's call it our social construct and just the way that we um you know our personal uh, access and how our status all of that is going to have to be drawn up again because we are all basically, we haven't been doing any of that stuff that keeps us in those same circle. So that'll be interesting to see. But of course, if those environments were more um, were more diverse, like not to be, you know, let's just use an example, the, the La Palais tasting event. If there, <laughs> there, I mean, is there anybody <laughs> in that room? I mean, like not even one, come on now. like. That's what I mean. So those kinds of things. Um, that's a whole other thing about just what people, you know, in-person events and gatherings and that sort of thing. But I think the wine marketing, winery marketing, can can do wonders for all of us. I always thought also that you know some of the most visible people in our industry now are sommeliers, mm -hmm. and 
you know, what was it, 2013 that the movie Psalm came out, something like that, 2012, 2013. And I'm sure most people listening to this podcast have, have watched Psalm. And, you know, one of the quote-unquote main people, but because he didn't live in California, Dylan Proctor was not prominently featured throughout the entire film. But, um, you know, I hope that had more to do with just the fact that it was a the first documentary that had been made by this company and he didn't live in Northern California and thus their access to him might have been a little bit more difficult. That's, that's what I will choose to believe at least. Um, I remember seeing that and thinking to myself, wow, I've actually never been served wine by any, at that time, anybody other than a white guy in, in a fine dining restaurant. And, you know, that has the, the sommelier space is, like overwhelmingly male dominated first and foremost. Um, and then, you know, even within that male segment, uh, I mean, it's, it's white males uh, to, you know, hundreds to one, right. Uh, at, at the very least. And a, a movie was published this year or uh, published is a really shitty word for a movie. It was released uh, this year called Uncorked. Uh, Dylan Proctor was actually, from what I understand, a producer, or at the very least, was very involved uh, in, he not only had a cameo in the film, but uh, served as kind of the wine industry mentor to the actors. And uh, for those that don't know, that is very common when you have actors playing chefs, play, uh, playing like uh, anything culinary, there's usually a chef on site, um, yeah. on set, you know, walking them through things and teaching them these things. And there was predictably a lot of pushback against the film for, you know, technical details that, you know, they didn't portray the, uh, the progression through the quartermaster sommiers correctly. There's no school to become a master som. Uh, it was heavily, you know, the product placement for Albert Bichot was like maybe a little cumbersome, which is okay. I'll, I'll say that was fair. Um, but it kind of missed everything that made it a film as opposed to a documentary, right? Like we're not, we want, we, if every single industry critiqued every single, uh, theatrical detail about any movie portraying that industry, we would never enjoy film. Exactly. And, and this was a film that portrayed a black family in, I believe Memphis, and the they owned a barbecue restaurant, which goddamn looked delicious. And one of the children was working at a wine shop on the side and was pursuing a career in wine. And it was a very important, I, I, I hope, symbol of just changing the way we view certain professionals, mm-hmm. right? It, if representation matters then hopefully this film can kind of serve as a different kind of marketing in that way, right? And if sommiers are so visible oftentimes in our industry, perhaps things like this are what can start to change that. I don't don't know if that'll happen. Perhaps it's naive to think that the movie will fix anything. But shit, we need some hope, right? Oh, yeah. I thought it was great. And it's funny that you say all the critiques because in the beginning of the film, I was like also making a (laughs) similar critique. I was like, wait a minute, that's not... And then I was like reminding myself, okay, this is actually... Wine is a component of this story, but this is really about a family and... Yes, it's a human story. And a human story. And yes, 
I think you, when you, it's also like knowing too, you're, you have, you have, knowing too much can make you dangerous. Like you have too much knowledge that you don't, don't really need to apply all of that to this. I think it was actually enjoyed more so by, I mean, not more so, but just equally by just people who have no affiliation with the, with the industry. They thought it was a great family story. They thought it gave them a little bit of insight. They were like, oh, this is really cool to see. So it did get, um, yeah, but yeah, the, of course the wine snobs, wine elitists were like critiquing every moment. And I think you just have to take yourself out of that space. We also just, frankly, there aren't that many wine films besides the documentary. So you just go into it. It's easy to kind of go into it with that mindset. Um, and I mean, unless you want to watch, what's that awful movie about like the four women that go away that like Napa Valley trip. It's, I forgot what it's called, but it's not good either. I mean, not either. Like, I think it's, it's called wine country. Wine country. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. Not I gotta be honest. I didn't even see it. I was like, I don't think it's that good. But I mean, again, no. if you can look at that, it's not about being good or bad, but you can look back at that and see like, okay, you know, these are, these are wine is a, is a component of this story, but this is really about a girlfriend's weekend away, you know? So, so yeah, that was amazing to see. I think it'll be interesting to see if sommeliers are still held in such a high regard. Again, now that restaurant life is completely different. You know, I think between the film, the film really put them in the spotlight and made them seem so like superhuman really. I mean, um, I'm talking about the documentary series. It made them seem have superhuman knowledge. How do they know that? How can they remember all that? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. That's so impressive. So I think that, which is so funny because so many of the ones, the sommeliers that became like really high profile in the, in the last, let's say four to five years, they don't even have those credentials, half of them. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see if they still remain as, rock star-ish. I also, yeah. I have always said, and I always, whenever I speak, I, I reiterate the message that I, to me, winemakers are the most important people in the wine industry. The reason why is because they are the creators. They are the artists. They are the ones, and I, I like, we can call, you know, winemakers um, and viticulturalists, I guess you could say. Um, both of them together really are turning the grapes into a consumer product that we enjoy and love, collect, and fawn over and i just feel like if we're going to hold any group of people in our industry up it should be them um more than anything else and that's why it's always kind of funny and tricky when like there's like a winemaker that's like it's like a ghost winemaker like the the, the owner of the company uh, winery owner and then you're like well who makes the wine well oh it's they're not they're not part of the story oh okay um so for me that's always been uh hugely um important it'd be interesting to see if this like as restaurant lifestyle just takes a back seat for a while if there's a shift in how we view who's important and the most important in the wine industry or who we value or who we're, i shouldn't say that who we're most interested in i wonder if winemakers will become more take more of that spotlight um yeah. in the coming months it'll be interesting to see well before we get out of here uh i've got kind of a quick fire round of questions for you okay. um this is not trivia. It is all subjective. There are no right answers, uh, only wrong answers. They are all going to be wrong. Um, all right. You get to drink a glass of wine with one person, living or dead, that 95% of the people listening to this podcast will have heard of. So you can't pick like, oh, my best friend, right? Like that, that doesn't count here. Who, who, who are you choosing? Barack Obama. Where are you drinking? With Barack. On Martha's Vineyard. Ooh, and what are you drinking? Champagne, grower's champagne. Respect. 
Um, you get to cook for family, friends, one meal. And it has to be the best meal you've ever cooked. You can, you, maybe this is a recipe you have in your back pocket, whatever it is, what are you cooking for them? Curry chicken. <laughs> I'm just an expert mm. at curry stuff for some reason. That sounds super, super good. Um, you get one last restaurant meal for the rest of your life. Where are you dining? I'm going to Omakase. Uh, gosh, Anywhere in particular? I don't even, I can't even think of which one I would want to go to. It's still hard. <laughs> okay. Somebody is going to New York for one weekend uh, and they need to find somewhere to have a cocktail. What is the one bar that they cannot miss? Uh, employees only? Is that West Village? Yeah, wait, no, that's not the one I meant. What's the one in the that's down the financial district? I can't. It's funny because we're not going out. I'm like blanking on a lot of the, our spots. What is it like Dead Rabbits or something Dead like rabbits, that? Sorry, Dead Rabbit. That's yeah. my, that's my favorite. Yeah. Okay. What's uh, what is it about New Jersey? What is it about New Jersey that keeps you guys coming home? New Jersey is a great state. Its proximity to New York is amazing, and we are just a resilient, like authentic people. And I love living here but I also love my access to the city and being stones throw away literally right there so New York City Italian food or Jersey Italian food Jersey unless it's like the Italian food in the village like via Corona or something like that Hamptons or the shore Hamptons why because it's more chill and you drink better wine out there? You drink better wine out there. And I think their sunsets are better, unless you're at Cape, Cape Bay. The sunsets in on Shelter Island are beautiful. And Montauk, ooh, Navy Beach, amazing. Yeah, good pick, good pick. Uh, the final question before, before we get you out of here, uh, you, whether it's one of the Kelly Selects wines or any other wine, uh, if you had the chance to introduce somebody listening to this to a new winery for the first time, uh, what is the winery that you would encourage them to check out that you believe is doing things the right way that is making delicious wine and that is owned and operated by uh, conscientious and ultimately good people? Oh, it's a big question. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Mousset Champagne. Cedric, my people. He's great. No, he's phenomenal. Um, he also was working he's with- He's super charismatic. Yeah, he is very charismatic. That helps. <laughs> but his wine is also fantastic. He also is working with Meunier specifically. So I just love that he's kind of doing something a little bit different um, out in Champagne. So I would put him on the, I think he's just phenomenal. And I, I look forward to including one of his uh, champagnes in a future set and just promoting him more. I love his wine. Who's the best looking winemaker in the Scarlet portfolio? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> okay. That, I was going to say, because it's either him one of the guys from Von Vinning is pretty handsome. Yeah, Andreas. I can't, I can't remember. Yeah. He's handsome too. But I love the dream. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the winemaker from Church on Telegram is so good, cute too. I forgot his name. Oh, Alexandra? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The champagne Why are they so attractive? I was going to say, that's like you travel to Spain and you just start looking around and getting depressed because everybody's good looking. <laughs> like every guy is handsome. Every woman is beautiful. 
and you're just like, what the fuck is going on around here? Like, I, you're like on vacation with your partner and neither one of you want to look at each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe going to Champagne is not such a good idea anymore. Yeah. Um, well, on, on that note, Kelly, uh, thank you this was so amazing. much. Thank you so much. It was such a great conversation. And I appreciate your interest in me, my story, and just, just all the topics we talked about. I, like, I think it was so great. Well, and this is, what I hope is this is the first of many conversations. The fact is, is that, like, we cannot let, what has it been? It's been since 2000, Ferguson was in 2015, which was, I think, really the last time we saw this much widespread civil unrest, and there was this much attention to what's been going on. And, you know, not to get too, too crazy political, but the truth is, is that this these problems were here before the current administration. Uh, they were here before Barack Obama was elected president. They will be here long after the 2020 election. And eventually we have to turn all of this into concrete and real action and conversations like this, whether they focus on macro issues or micro issues, I hope can guide us towards that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with it. Let's, I would love to be part of it, all of it. So, so I just, everybody at home, don't stop now. Now is not the time to slow down. Now is not the time to get tired. I know there is fatigue from like taking in all this information and, and trauma and take care of yourselves, be kind to yourselves, but like, it's not over. That's right. So, all right. Uh, with that in mind, that has been another episode of the Take It to the Palette podcast. Kelly Mitchell, thank you so much. Everybody check her out. Uh, follow her on Instagram. Follow her on, I don't know how active you are on Twitter these days. Uh, I put uh, but, it on that, so just mostly Instagram at Kells01, which is my main page. And then you'll see my smaller pages next attached to those. And then buy some Kelly Selects wines. The wines are absolutely delicious. Um, at the very least, you can Google Kelly Selects wines um, and it'll pop up. But just make sure you're supporting Kelly. Make sure you are supporting uh, artisanal winemakers who believe in things that you do. And with that in mind, we will see you next time. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Will. This is amazing. <laughs>